For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to The Range on the Believe Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm Ralph Irvin, and one thing I have learned in talking with creators in the golf industry is that there are truly special individuals that are so full of understanding in terms of golf gear that they can build their own designs, but then also be brought in to help with others. These people have an understanding of the science and magic of golf that few can fully comprehend. Today, we are joined by one of these men, someone who is there at the advent of Metal Woods, who designed everything from driver to putter, and is now bringing absolute precision gear to the course in a modern and sophisticated way. We're joined by Steve Sachs, the co-founder of Sachs Parente Golf. Steve, it's great to talk with you again. Good to talk to you, sir. Let's start with Sachs Parente. As you entered into this company with Rich Parente, who you've known in the golf industry for a number of years. Right. I've known Rich since the mid-80s, probably, somewhere in there. He was partners with a guy by the name of Dick Delacruz, and I've known Delacruz since I was about 17. And Dick was a great inventor, and Rich was a great inventor, and I'm just tagging along. Well, and I say I, I know Dick Delacruz from talking with uh, uh, Toulon Golf when they first started that they had brought him in. So, I mean, again, we're talking about people that have been around and, and really generating club technology for decades. Yeah, we did. Uh, we did Goldwyn together in the early 90s. And before that, Rich and uh, Rich and Dick were founders as consultants. We'll get to that in a moment. Let's jump <laughs> into the Wayback Machine. Okay. When you entered into the golf business how far back does that take us? Started picking up range balls when I was 11 years old and I never left. <laughs> so we're working for Joe and Betty Warburton at Chula Vista Muni Golf Course. And then you, I mean, obviously you made your way into club building, club design. Yeah, I went to, uh, when I was like 20, I went to work for Terry Brown at Precision Golf and we used to make persimmon. We were, we were, we were a subcontractor to a bunch of companies, Callaway being one of them, but uh, Slotline, Sounders, uh, Sounder, Callaway, and there's a couple others in there somewhere. Well, take our listeners into the industry at that time. I mean, obviously it was a completely different animal in terms of what it was like in building clubs and what the golf club industry was like. Yeah, it was, it was a lot friendlier. I'll tell you that. We, uh, we all took care of each other back then, even the, even the competitors. They weren't the rivalries we have now. So um, we had shaft shortages in the late 70s and 80s. And whoever got shafts, or at least our smaller groups, would, we'd call the other guy and say, hey, I got a 1,000 shafts. Do you need some of them? We'd just send them off to whoever needed them. So we all kept each other in business when times were hard. And uh, now it's a little bit more cutthroat. Everybody's just trying to make the money. It's corporate. Before it was all, it was a personal business. And as uh, families got out of it and corporations came in, it changed a whole bunch. So it's a lot different. 
lot smaller. At at that time, was was the industry still centered in in Carlsbad in that area? Uh, just starting. Just starting. It was uh, uh, it was mostly East Coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wilson was back there. McGregor was back there. McGregor was in the South. Spalding was in the East Coast. Uh, Wilson was Chicago. Spalding was Massachusetts. Uh, McGregor was, I want to say South Carolina. I'm not sure. Might have been Atlanta. Um, and then um, the first out here was uh, Callaway. And that, that was rich in Temecula with a guy by the name of Tony Manzoni. They founded the company as Hickory Stick. And uh, Ely sold his winery. He came in as a partner to, to Rich and Tony. And eventually they moved it to Palm Springs. And then they moved it to, Dick came in there too at some point. And when Dick got to the company, they moved it to Carlsbad. And uh, the only one in Carlsbad before that was Cobra, Tom Crow. Another great guy. So, and then the rest is history. Gary Adams started, uh, TaylorMade. And uh, uh, Tideless came out. They had a little operation in Escondido, and then they expanded it. So it, it kind of evolved. It wasn't, it wasn't an overnight thing. I would imagine that in the environment that you're describing, that different people would come up with a new club design, new creation, and you'd almost go to the, your peers soon after just to say, look what we created. Watch out. Here's what's coming because of the nature of the relationships that you had back then. Yeah. There, th- those of us who were friends weren't, weren't really afraid to share stuff. I'm sure there were guys that, you know, some guys trusted others and didn't trust somebody else. But I, I think on a whole, uh, there was a lot of feedback around. We all, we all would talk to each other. We'd have you know, meals with each other at different times. It was just friendlier. Um, I'm still friends with a whole bunch of guys that I met way back when who were small manufacturers or, or just starting. And uh, now I've seen some of these guys retire. So. So when they started and now they're gone. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of crazy. We all uh, know that the first metal wood came from the folks at TaylorMade and you were actually there when it was created. Right. Yeah. Um, Gary had uh, tooling done and it was cast at AlphaCast in Santa Monica. That's the other big change. All the manufacturing was in the States. Casting houses were here. Shaft manufacturing was here. Uh, early graphite was all done mostly in San Diego, um, and and that all left. But um, I got ahead of it there. But the um, uh, Alpha Cast did metalwoods, and uh, it was kind of amazing when they were able to figure out how to make the tooling that they could make a wax and and then you know create the club out of it. Uh, took took about a year from when they started until they finally had something. So it, it was pretty interesting. I got to imagine that you see that process happening and you see it developing into an actual club head. There's this wonder. And then it's like, okay, we got to go hit this. We got to see exactly what this thing's going to do. Yeah. It didn't take long for that thing to get shafted one of the first ones. And I'm sure it was Gary that did it, but they weren't even finished. They, they get it where you can put a shaft in the neck and the face was squared out or, you know, hand sanded. And then they took them out and hit them and tested them and, and did whatever. Uh, if you remember, the graphics were pretty minor back then, too. It was like, we'll just polish it and engrave it and fill in the engraving. It's basically looked at as a big iron. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was it was fun. You know, there, was a lot, there were a lot of guys who, were, who did a lot of things that no one's ever heard of. 
you know, a lot of designers, a lot of innovators, a lot of engineers mm-hmm. who, you know, you don't know their name, but if they weren't around, we wouldn't have what we have today. After TaylorMade, you, you've already mentioned this, you founded your own brand, which I greatly remember because uh, Goldwyn Golf did a marketing plan with my old station, Extra Sports 690 in San Diego. This was in the 90s. But your drivers were known for being super long at Goldwyn. Yeah. They were they were good. Um, we made we made something that felt like persimmon, performed exceedingly well. Um, in fact, the original ones were so neutral; uh, they had so, such a high uh, MOI you couldn't work the ball. And it was it was uh, it, we had actually dialed it back a little bit, but they were quiet. You know, it was like hitting persimmon. You, instead of this loud clang, you had a little <laughs> it was gone, and uh, uh, that kind of doomed it when you get down to it because the titanium stuff was like listening to a cannon mm-hmm. and all of us old timers are oh that's so loud what are we going to do and all the young guys go hey this is great listen to this and and then if it was late afternoon and you hit titanium you could actually see the club spark against the ball and and that got people crazy too so it was a, it was an uphill battle <laughs> But I, I still remember that club head. Uh, I say, we did stuff with them at the station. I have a friend who actually still has one in his bag, uh, believe it or not. Um, you employed screws in the design, which was unusual at the time. I mean, you talk about the very basic design of that first tailor-made wood. This was something that really looked manufactured. Yeah, it was 100% CNC milled, and uh, the, the sole plate was screwed on. So we had a fairway wood. We had a brass plate in the fairway wood. You know, it looked like, you know, an old persimmon club. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, they were great. I still have a three and four with it, I feel like. I've never taken them out of the bag. It was a great golf club. The one thing that also was notable about that club is the weighting, really the, the, the physics and everything of that club was that you put all the weight down in the bottom of the club. You know, I mean, it wasn't in the shaft and it's something that in a way we kind of would see later on with your putters. Right. The big thing on milled metal woods, which is kind of the, the brand we tried to push. Um, you could put the weight anywhere you wanted. So if you wanted something to hook the ball, we could do that. Or you wanted to slice the ball, we could do that. Uh, the original ones, we went for MOI, and we had to dial that back. But uh, it was it was really precise and exact, which persimmon never had. And even even most metal woods don't really have, because they're all hand ground and, and such. Uh, the, the manufacturing back then was not anywhere near as good as it is right now. If anyone's wondering, we're in the golden age right now. This stuff's unbelievable. Whoever makes it. So, um, but we did. We we when I was leaving Goldwyn, we came out with the uh, the lightweight shaft and grip concept on on irons and woods. And uh, I had made the decision to leave before we did that, and uh, I went over. That's what actually when I went over to a uh, uh, carbide when I left Goldwyn. But that was definitely the precursor for what we were doing with the uh, putter. Was your work with Carbite your first time really working and focusing on putters? Uh, yeah. That was the first time where it was 100% putters. Um, we had the wedges, which Chet I read invented, which was the, uh, the, rough, the permanent rough face. And uh, I got this. I was mostly sales and, sales and marketing there. But the, uh, the putters were unbelievable. And they came... Carbites third or fourth year. I wasn't there at the beginning. I was there just as the putters started coming out. And uh, high MOI and 
uh, you know, really, really good product. Sold thousands of butters, thousands upon thousands of butters. We're kind of running through your bio, but I mean, it's funny because I see it as a progression in technology and understanding. Later, you worked with Rife, and I remember them with the two-bar putter, one of the early, right. early pre-video episodes of the Golf Spotlight was at their headquarters in Florida because uh, right. I was based San, there. Yeah. yeah, and so, you know, it, it's the development in terms of weight distribution and, and, and all of that really kind of led to the development of what you, you've created with Sax Parente, which is the strength comes from where you put the weights. Right. I got to give, give credit to Garen. And I did no design at Rife at all. Everything was Garen's. But Garen, smart as can be. And he had, he had lots of great ideas. And we were able to use a lot of and, and put them out there. And the, the two-bar was an incredible putter. Uh, it was actually a little bit different, although it was really behind the ball. Uh, and it, it was more like hitting it with a hammer. And uh, uh, it played really well. It, it, you know, as, you fart, as you really got out to heel and toe it, it had its problems, but for for what it was, it was a great putter. And uh, and you know, Garen has a great eye. He knows how to make stuff look good, and and he was always great at that. It, it was it was interesting stuff. Well, you've been tapped on to consult on pr products for for years. I mean, you know, many right. different things. I'm curious with, with you know your time in the industry. Do you keep like a mental file cabinet? Where, where there's all these little files that say, you know, well, if this, this is, this is what this means and all these things, or do you come to learn that there's a certain simplicity about design and really the dynamics of great contact? It could be really complex where you've got an encyclopedia of stuff, or maybe there's just an overrunning theme that really says, this is the way to think about golf club design. Uh, it's both. I, if you look at what we build, even though a lot of it looks complicated, uh, it's pretty basic. We're, we're, we're moving weight and we're just trying to find the easiest way to move weight. Uh, but what's kind of filed away is everything that's ever worked and everything that we know doesn't work. And uh, I know a lot of guys do a lot of computer modeling, but the computer doesn't know what we actually tried and didn't work. You know, that, there's, no, there's no basis to the history in the programming. All it can do is, uh, and you put something on the computer and all it can do is tell you what you have in front of you. And if you have a really sophisticated system, it'll give you some performance models. But those performance models are still based on only what the computer knows or what the programmer knows. Well, I got you know, 50 years of looking at stuff, knowing how it all puts. And uh, it, it's, it's just different. So, and Rich has more than I do. Rich is 80, was turned 81 this year, a week ago. And, uh, you know, he'll look at something and, and just say, yeah, that won't work and this is why. And I kind of do that too. And, and uh, then we look at stuff that we know works and, and ask each other, what if we did and try to figure out a way to make, to make it different and make it perform better. And if it doesn't perform better, we pretty much walk away from it. We're not going to make something just to say it's different. And it's just going to be the same. Same isn't any good. Anyone can do the same thing. <laughs> you know, we want to make it a better product. So it's always the goal. Make it better. Well, you mentioned Rich. What brought you two together to create Sax Parenti putters? When we did Goldwyn, we became really good friends. Uh, I, I knew Rich a little bit back then. Uh, I knew Delacruz much better than I knew Rich. Uh, but for whatever reason, the more time we spent together, the more we had 
the discussions of what these were. And there were times when neither one of us were really working for anyone. And we'd go to lunch every day of the week and talk golf clubs and talk about changing things. And it was, it was good because we came up with a lot of different stuff. Uh, and I learned how Rich thinks and he learns how I think. And, and we, then we figured out what we could build. And, and uh, luckily, I'm pretty good at you know, cobbling things together. Uh, and so we could get something to where we could try it and see if it had a possibility. Because you know, we're, we're doing it all on a shoestring when we buy ourselves. It's not like we have you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to throw at designs. So we would cobble something together. And you know, if, if it worked, we'd keep trying to figure out ways to make it better. Um, and the ultralight, the ultra low balance pin was actually part of that. That was the ultimate of cobbling things together, just trying to find graphite shafts that were light enough, trying to find grips that were light enough. It was, I mean, we were making grips out of cork. So I'd just slap cork on a grip and then I'd sit there on a grinder and form it. Then we'd have to, we'd test it. And then eventually we'd have to cut it all off and save all the pieces and find out what it weighed. <laughs> How much was this? And do all the math. And, um, you know, see what the boundaries were, where we could go and uh, developing shafts. No one made lightweight, super lightweight shafts. Uh, and then, who was it? Uh, Aldola told me you couldn't do it. Uh, so this is a long time ago now, but Aldola said, you, you can't make a putter shaft that light. It won't hold up. So I took one of their super lightweight wood shafts and cut it from the tip until it fit in the hosel. Then cut it from the butt until it was putter length and tried to break it. I couldn't break it. So I just went back to him and said, well, here it is. It's your shaft. Can you make it now? <laughs> so they figured out how to make it after that. You talk about things that a computer would say you can do when you look at something or, or, or Rich would look at something and say, well, experience says, no, we can't do that. Right. So, so I imagine when you talk about the ultra low putter weight, that maybe there was something that kind of clicked that it's like, oh, wait, this is something neither of us has ever tried before. The first thing Rich said is, I can feel the putterhead for the first time in my life. And so that's an exact quote. I mean, we went out there, we hit some putts, and he looked up at me and he said that. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, I've never felt a putterhead like this. He goes, it's unbelievable. And as we started doing it, we kind of were figuring out what it was what it was, but neither one of us really said much. Um, and then we thought about it and then we hit it some more. And finally, we started defining what it does. Um, and at that point, we were trying to sell it to an investor or investor group. And this is a long time ago. Uh, this is seven, eight years ago. And uh, we would take it to the people that were 20 handicappers and say, here, hit this. And, you know, we're trying to get them to invest in something, anything. <laughs> and they would hit it. And then they would start telling us what we thought it was doing. And that was really the aha moment that we knew we had something. Where I could give it to a guy who's got 20 handicap, and he puts with it. And he starts telling us, like, hey, I can feel the head. And it's releasing, and it's going towards the target. And mm -hmm. It seems squarer than my other putter. And um, you know, these guys gave us all sorts of information, but they could tell what was going on without us saying anything. We said, here it is, try it. And then they'd hit it. It's pretty exciting, really. It's interesting because I would say that some would describe it as having shocking results because you don't expect much 
out of a putter. You don't expect something no. out of a, that shortest swing, out of that slowest swing, out of a club that just looks like a putter. It, 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 right. And and yet, in hitting a stroke, you actually feel it squaring the ball up. You see the results that I'm not having to grind on a stroke. I can just hit a putting stroke, and the putter is going to come through squarely. Right. If you, it, what's really interesting to me is if you just let the putter go, let it let it be itself rather than guide it. It doesn't matter what your stroke is. It doesn't matter if you have a center shaft, a heel shaft, uh, a face balance or a toe down or anything in between. It's always going to go back to where you started. And all those other variables don't matter. It's still going to go back. If you're aiming at the target, when you let it come through, it's going to still be aiming at the target. It's not going to be open. It's not. You're not going to feel the toe moving crazily or trying to close up on you or or the heel trying to get ahead of it or anything. Um, so the the ultimate payoff is no matter what your stroke is, as long as you get the putter, get it moving back down without having a chokehold on it, it's going to go back to square. And there's nothing greater than that in golf. Because that's the hardest thing to do is to always get back to where you were. Mm-hmm. And part of the way that you get us there is because of the nature of putter design in the business now, you can actually go and use the best materials to create the best performance. It's not about the cost or trying to hit a price margin. It's about making the best putter. Right. That makes it a little bit harder for us, um, especially with COVID running around and the golf business in turmoil this year, but um, we're still staying true to it. Um, we spare no expense at making the putter right. I can hold one up. My, my multi-piece answer style putter, um, it's expensive. It's hard making putters in you know, seven pieces or six pieces and putting them together and making sure they hold together and everything else. But if you want to make the best, you just have to do it. And we've really cut margin, especially when COVID hit. We, we dropped pricing on everything just to you know, help everybody out and uh, you know, give everybody a chance. And uh, so... Yeah, there's a lot in these things, and I think it's a bargain, but that's just me. Well, and <laughs> you look at the capabilities now. You talk about this being a golden age uh, of club creation. Yes. The interesting thing that I think makes it a golden age is there are still professionals out there that learned how to craft by hand, that learned yes. how to design without the capabilities of a CAD system and stuff. And so you can apply your knowledge into what a computer model says. So what you get is, yes, something that's finely tuned after decades of experience, but also you know that a computer is going to help make it consistently. So it's right. going to come out the way you designed it. Right. When we when we decide we want to put weight in the heel and toe and, and try to move as much weight as possible, the computer lets us fine-tune that. Yeah. But what's interesting is no matter how good your computer is, even when you think you have it dialed in and you make your prototypes uh everything can be perfect but chances are your weights aren't you're still going to have to add more to the heel more to the toe take something out of the back it's it's kind of a moving target until you finally get it in your hands and uh just about everything we make for whatever reason seems to be uh, uh stronger in the toe when we start and we're always dialing the heel back up and that's the next challenge how do you bring the heel back up without making your toe go down? 
and no, no, no one thinks of it that way. But you know, most people say, "Oh, I got to take some weight out of the toe," or and you know, move it. But I don't want to take any more weight out of the toe because the toe's too good. So now, how do I find more weight to put it in the heel? And I, and I have this neck going down through the weight. How am I going to make all that work? So it it gives you a challenge or an issue, and you have to solve it. But that's, that's kind of what makes it fun. It was easy. Who cares? <laughs> it's it, it's it's a giant uh, puzzle. I mean, it, yeah. it, it's it's always been a puzzle, and now you just have ways of making the pieces a little bit more precise. Yeah. So and it's fun. I mean, that's golf should be fun. It should be fun when you're making golf clubs. It should be fun when you're playing it. it should be fun when you're practicing it. Um, I always I, I'll credit someone else. Uh, guys at uh, Carbite. It was always. You want to have fun, make more putts. And that's right. If you make more putts, it's more fun. And the, I kind of adopted that many years ago. You know, if you make more putts, you're having more fun. You're getting bragging rights. You're beating your friends. You're, you're doing all sorts of things that make you happy. When you miss a putt, you're miserable. When you look at the capabilities now, the technology mm -hmm. that's available in designing clubs, do you ever find yourself looking back at older designs and just kind of wondering, what if I had this technology, I could have finally tuned this little thing, that little thing in, in, in a club? Well, we don't wonder about it. We do it. We're always looking at old designs and trying to figure out ways to make them modern. That's kind of what we've done with everything. Anyway, is, uh, if you looked at the 18, it's reminiscent of the, uh, uh, an 8802, but it's reimagined. You know, it's basic shape, but we made it bigger. You put a hole in the sole of the club. No one's, no one's done that since the 20s, I think. But, uh, you know, as, as original as I mean, look, everyone, that was done in this place. It's not original. Most of the stuff's been done before in some way, but it's never been done to make it efficient uh, to, the, to the degree that we can now because they didn't have the computers and they didn't have the machinery. I mean, you can imagine some guy pouring a, a punk of aluminum into some kind of mold and attaching wood to it and filing it with a hand file and, you know, little grinding pieces and trying to make it right. And here we can put it on a machine and an hour later, you have something that's perfect. So it's, uh, it's, it's different, but we take all the old stuff. The old stuff's great. There's all sorts of crazy stuff out there. You know, it's fun to look at it and it's fun to incorporate it. Well, I like to finish my talks here on the range by looking back at your portfolio. So, Excluding your current Sax Parente putters, which are phenomenal, we've established that. What design or club or maybe an innovation might jump out at you where you've got a real sentimental favorite? Or is there one thing that you think you worked on that made a huge, major impact on the game? Impact on the game would have to be uh, um, Rife and Carbite both. Um, and Odyssey was, I obviously don't work for Odyssey, but they were there then. But in that probably 20 year period, there was so much putter innovation going on. Uh, it's, it's took what Carson did in 66 and, uh, you know, the original answer and changed the world of putters completely. I mean, you know, putters were traditional back then. Yeah, you know, you had basic shapes and low tech and, and the, those three companies uh, really changed what putters are today. And hopefully with the new one, we can change what, what there'll be in the future. And we'll see. 
That's all I can tell you. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it is amazing just to see the innovation. And I mean, I, I still think back my first three wood was actually persimmon. Um, yeah. and I can't believe that I was able to hit it as well as I did because it was just that well engineered. Um, yeah. I, I, uh, I gave away most of my stuff to the, uh, Southern Cal PGA, all my persimmon and all that stuff a while ago. Um, I have a couple pieces left that are, you know, fun to look at and reminisce when I could still play golf and, you know, hit the ball and know where it was going and felt like I hit it. Okay. <laughs> you know? But, uh, it's, it's so different. Um, so much technology and we all like to, uh, look at the, uh, USGA and talk about the rules and the things they have to deal with. You know, part of me can't blame them for what they have to be stern about and hold their ground on because we've, you know, the golf courses are becoming obsolete and, and uh, you know, the game is getting in, on some levels really easy. And so it's, it's changing and it's going to keep changing. And uh, we'll just have to see where it goes. But no one's changed putters all that much yet. Yeah. <laughs> Till now. Cause they all feel the same. When you really get down to it, if you, if I pick up any other brand besides mine, uh, and they're say a similar model, um, you know, like a, a, a Newport two type putter. And I took them up from 10 different manufacturers. They all are going to feel the same until you get to mine. You know, until you get to Saks Perini. And it's going to feel completely different. Now, you, you may not like it. Okay. That's, I can live with that, but you can't look at me and say, well, it doesn't feel any different because it feels a lot different. So that's, that's the whole point. point. Yeah, that was the whole point. Get it to feel the head and, and give you give you the opportunity to trust your real stroke, and we'll help. Our putter will help change your stroke. Our technology, it'll it'll make it better. We've kind of proven that. Steve, I could pepper you with questions about the evolution of golf equipment for hours. I'm not going to do that today, um, but I <laughs> might have to bring you back to do just that. Thanks for joining me here on the range. Well, I appreciate it, and look forward to the next talk. Hopefully uh, non-COVID in person. Absolutely. That would be great. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Take care. And that was Steve Sachs, co-founder of Sachs Parente Golf. And you really owe it to yourself to check out their putters. They are stunning, innovative, and most importantly, they perform really, really well. Before I go, I wanted to say in full disclosure that I very recently went through a fitting at the Saks Parente headquarters to experience their ultra-low balance point design and see if it was right for my game. I had tried it at the brand's launch in January of 2019, but in this environment, I was able to really grasp how the technology works. Let's just say you take the club back, release your hands, and the club self-straightens, and as long as you don't get in the way, you'll have some great contact. I decided to give their 66 model putter a go, and you can see the results right now at thegolfspotlight.com. The decision, though, meant removing my 2008 tailor-made Itsy Bitsy Spider putter from the bag. It had been a fixture there for 12 years, and I'm sure each and every one of you have taken a club out for obvious performance advantages, but still wondered, is it the right thing to do? Well, that's how technology in golf works. If you embrace it, eventually every club will make its way out of your bag as you upgrade. I say embrace the technology and appreciate the advances that come from innovation. 
It makes this tough game a little bit easier, and thus, a lot more fun. If you want to know more about golf equipment, subscribe to us on YouTube at The Golf Spotlight. For the latest on the range, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Again, it's The Golf Spotlight. We welcome your comments there as well. You've listened this far, so subscribe to The Range on iTunes or follow us on Spotify. We have new shows dropping every Wednesday. Now you can stop listening and get your swings in. Go, have fun, play golf, and we'll see you here next time on The Range. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.